recent years, maybe he'll be a change agent. And that cabinet reshuffling, I think, not only did it backfire, but I think it, it altered perceptions significantly for the kind of leader he is at the moment and where he will be taking Japan. And I have to say, I've been pretty disappointed by that cabinet reshuffling, and I don't, I don't think he's been a very steady hand uh, in the last couple of months, certainly uh, as much as I hoped he'd be. Okay, William, thank you very much indeed. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo right now, the Nikkei 225 is down over 1%. The S&P, the NSX 200, sorry, in uh, Australia, down about half a percent. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea is off 0.4%. And here in Hong Kong, looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 40 points lower in just under one hour. Thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The news is next, followed by Back Chat with Jim Gord and Ada Wong. Just before I go, let me give you an update on the weather forecast. Fine and very hot with some haze during the day. The maximum temperature is going to be around 34 degrees in the urban areas and it's going to be very hot tomorrow and the weather will then deteriorate later with swells. The very hot weather warning is in force at the moment. It's 29 degrees, 85% relative humidity. Just got 8.31. Here's Andrew Shirosky with the Half Hour News. For the fourth day running, the local daily COVID caseload has topped 6,000. Health authorities confirmed 6,617 new cases yesterday, including 237 imported cases. Dr. Albert Au from the Center for Health Protection said this was worrying. For four days in a row, the number of local cases have been over 6,000 per day, so it has picked up a rising trend. And this is worrying. This goes to show that we have a number of transmission chains in the community and transmission is rising. I hope the public can follow all the anti-infection control measures, in particular when you're in a crowd or gatherings, please wear a tightly fit face mask. And for those who are not yet vaccinated, please do so as soon as possible. The deputy director of an NGO says it's a good idea to provide financial support and mentors to needy students, but the quota is too small. The government says it'll give $10,000 each to 2,000 high school students to tackle intergenerational poverty. The students will also be given a mentor. Selai Shan from the Society for Community Organization told RTHK that both the financial support and the time spent with the mentor was too little, and the one-year scheme should be extended to at least three years. We think they should extend to all those children they're living on the poverty line and they should increase their financial assistance and they should extend the service year. One year is too few. It's not enough because for cultivate the growth of children need more time. Anthony Fauci, the U.S. government's infectious diseases expert who became a household name during the pandemic, says he'll step down in December. President Biden's chief medical advisor said he wasn't retiring, but embarking on the next phase of his career. Here's the BBC's Gary O'Donoghue. Anthony Fauci has been hinting for some time that at 81 years old, he wanted to step back from his official roles. After advising seven presidents and becoming the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, he says he wants to travel and write. Dr Fauci became a hugely polarising figure during the past two years, with many on the right opposed to the restrictions targeting him personally. Joe Biden said the country was stronger and healthier because of Dr Fauci's work. 
The United States says resurrecting the Iran nuclear deal is closer now than it was two weeks ago. The State Department spokesman said Washington was encouraged by Iran's apparent dropping of the demand to remove the Iranian Revolutionary Guards from the U.S. foreign terrorist organization list. But it added that the response from Tehran hadn't been clear. Earlier, Iran accused the United States of procrastinating in efforts to revive the deal, a charge denied by Washington. The 2015 deal gave Tehran sanctions relief in exchange for curbing its nuclear program. It collapsed after Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out in 2018. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with me, Jim Gould, and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, for our main subject, we're talking about the welfare of the elderly as Hong Kong faces an ageing population with about 450,000 more seniors aged 65 and above within five years. The Secretary for Labour and Welfare, Chris Sun, has said authorities are considering allowing more operators of elderly care homes to run facilities across the border to meet uh, rising demand for spaces and to uh, deal with uh, manpower shortages here. But it appears that officials intend to stick with the existing system of allowances, meaning that a universal retirement protection system does not seem to be an option for now. After 9.15, we'll talk about the Singaporean government's decision to repeal uh, a colonial-era law against gay sex in what, and what effect that may have on regional competition to attract and retain talent. You can let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk. Or you can give us a call on 233-88266. And joining us now for the first part of the programme, we have Jean Wu, who's director of the CUHK Jockey Club Institute of Ageing and Emeritus Professor of Medicine at the Chinese University. And also Daniel Lai, a member of the Elderly Commission and Dean of the Faculty of Social Sciences at Hong Kong Baptist University. Um, good morning to you both. Um, perhaps, uh, Jean Wu, we can come to you first. Hello, good morning. Thanks very much for joining us uh, again. So uh, we, we already have quite a, an ageing population. One in five of us are 65 and uh, above. Um, how is Hong Kong going to approach the challenge of an ageing population? Well, I, I think uh, people have been grab, grappling with this issue. Um, the, I think the consensus among uh, academics and policymakers is that um, we need to do something further upstream rather than tackle uh, the issue when people get to be 70, 80, uh, 90, requiring long-term care become dependent in various ways because it, it's very difficult to cope with that burden. So the, the trend has been to uh, do something upstream to retard decline. Um, the current focus is unfortunately mainly on prevention of chronic diseases, but there are a whole lot of other things that one can do. Um, so I think that both from the point of view of dealing with people who ha have become very dependent and also from the point of view of tackling this issue further upstream, um, I don't think Hong Kong is doing very well at all compared to other countries. 
Mm. Um, um, Professor Wu, uh, what sort of upstream measures um, you know, have other countries adopted? I, I do realize that we now have more uh, sort of district health um, centers, uh, but they, yeah, they still tackle, um, you know, only chronic diseases like diabetes. Uh, but, yeah. um, you know, in terms of lifestyle, you know, what you eat and how, how much you exercise and whether there's a good um, social and emotional care network, that sort of thing, it's um, not there yet. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree. I mean, uh, in, in some other countries, you, you actually have the medical community uh, buying this narrative. So that's a very first important first step. So they will refer people to things what they call social prescribing or, uh, or you know, things like that. But in Hong Kong, it's still very medically dominant in the sense that if you're aging, you have disease, and if you have disease, you see the doctor. And what are district health centers doing if there are no doctors there? So I think the first thing is to get rid of this perception because doctors cannot do anything in terms of telling people how to behave or motivating them to, to adopt a kind of healthy lifestyle. It, it's group, it's community action, and there are examples of really uh, impressive things going on, which are uh, really empowerment of people, they understand, and so they demand certain services. So I think it, it's happening, but it's taken a long time, because I think for, for a long time there's this thing of ageism. You know, if you're old, you don't know anything, you, 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 you know, we, we will provide service. That that narrative has been very um, very bad for aging policies. And older people are those who you see in community centres, in NGOs, but they're not. You see, what happened to the, the the men don't go there for for a start. So we need to reach out to you know the 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 broad uh, population of older people, which are retired people, highly skilled, doing their own thing. Okay, they're well, capable of pushing some something. Let's uh, bring in Daniel Lai. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning. So what, what do you think our priorities should be in preparing for a, a, an ageing population? Well, I think our priority is really to try to capture a multiple approaches in terms of uh, dealing with the needs. Um, very often we see the need as uh, almost like a devastating or negative need. But that is, as a matter of fact, when we look back, when we are looking at normal aging, people who are getting older, not necessarily all of them are needing intensive, very intensive care. Uh, on the other hand, if we can do um, more in terms of what uh, Professor Wu has mentioned about the upstream prevention, upstream lifestyle changes, we can we can reduce the number of people who need intensive uh, uh, um, uh, care by others when they're getting into their uh, 80s or 90s. And that would really help. At the same time, I think also um, we we need to think of other than services. What are the other things that we can do as a community? Because think about that way is um, the population aging is indeed a a, a positive uh, reflection of the standard of living being standard of living being uh, improved in our our society around the world. More and more people are getting older. Then then, but at the same time, keep providing services uh, from only the government um, may not necessarily resolve the issue. I think the issue is really about how to build the community capacity and an environment that would be facilitative to older people when they get older. Mm. Uh, uh, Chris Sun, the Welfare Secretary, has said that... Uh, hello? 
Uh, I think we have. We seem to have some interference. Um, um, Daniel Lai, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, okay fine. Um, so the Welfare Secretary said the, the, the policy of ageing in place, where uh, old people are able to grow old in their own homes and communities, uh, um, that is the way to go, if possible. So uh, residential care homes would be like a last resort. Um, is, is that the way that we should be tackling the issue? Well, I, I think we should ask ourselves, where do we want to live when we get older, right? Mm. If you ask around 100 people on the street who are at the age of 65 or older, they will tell you most of them. Most of them will tell you that I would rather stay in my own home, stay right. in my own community. Only when, only when in some family, when older people are in argument with the younger generation, they say, oh, you don't need to take care of me. When I get old, I go to the long-term care homes, right? That was only a joke. It's, as a matter of fact, everyone knows that. Um, home care, I mean, uh, home care is the way to go, and institutional care is always the last resort. I mean, uh, when, when we look around in other, say, Northern European countries, they focus a lot on providing the environment, providing the professional support or paraprofessional support in the community so that people don't need to move to their uh, long-term care home. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying that people are not in need there, particularly some older people, their living environment may not be uh, ideal enough for them to receive the professional services at home. Then there may be need for them to move, uh, change their environment. But at the same time, I think we need more innovation in between home and long-term care facilities. Do we have other options? We, we need to keep exploring. But by and large, I think the aging in place principle is not just a government policy. It is something that in our mind that we like to be. I mean, for myself, if I get into my 85 or 90, I like to be in my own community, walking around, saying hello to my friends, and enjoying the lifestyle I used to be, rather than depending on or being uh, living in some uh, long-term care facilities with a lot of restriction, unless I have no choice. Right? Mm. Well, I think a lot of elderly people would agree with that, uh, Dr. Lai. Uh, however, I see that um, you know government policy really focuses on uh, more on institutional care. So you know, uh, having uh, another ten thousand new beds, you know, as um, uh, stated by uh, the new secretary, Secretary Sun. Uh, but um, we we don't hear uh, enough uh, you know, of how to build this community network, how to build this social network, and uh, as um, uh, Professor Jean Wu said. How to do social prescribing? I find this uh, absolutely fascinating because I, I, I understood this concept to be, um, you know, to be getting community resources, whether from arts and culture or from sports, and you know, you, you get uh, the elderly person out of their home and go to the museum or go for a hike. And but is anybody doing that, or is there any policy, you know, supporting that? I suppose uh, right now. Um, statistic health care centers could kind of try to explore the expansion of some of their mandates. At the same time, there are district um, uh, elderly services center. Um, all these are supposed to have the mandate to do that. But of course, one issue when we talk to the people at the front line, they will tell you that they are overwhelmed because the uh, resources are tight, right? Despite the fact that, and, and sometimes government policy can only go that far until people talk about it and complain about it, unfortunately. But when you talk to the DECC people, the people uh, working in the district uh, uh, um, elderly services center, they will tell you that 
when there are needs in the community, they have to uh, provide that, and and more and more are being added on to them, but without the uh, reasonable uh, uh, complement of uh, staffing, which is also an important aspect. I mean, we we see we we heard of different types of services, but one thing we still don't um, hear much enough is about how to enhance the staffing and the quality of staffing, which is also an important issue. I mean. You, you build um, more long-term care places, which is good. I uh, Don't get me wrong. I think there are older people who are in need. There are family members who are really unable to take care of them. So increasing the number to meet those people who are really in need is important. But at the same time, uh, think about um, in order to care for those in the long-term care, do we have enough uh, succession in terms of human resources? Uh, personnel who are able to provide the care, the long-term care workers, uh, the nurses. Uh, I know that the government has been expanding in terms of uh, training nurses, but at the same time, how about the personal care worker? Uh, there have been programs trying to attract uh, younger people to enter into the sector, but at the same time, with no promotion ladder, with uh, no professionalism being built on so that uh, younger people can see the future, then that's different. Right? We, we never had a sector-wide understanding about the long-term care uh, workers, the challenges they face with, and what we need to do in order to change the sector in a way that that is a, uh, a profession that people like to take up for themselves, for their future, and for the older people in the community. So, so I think there are many we can we can expand more uh, to balance out the, uh, the need for uh, long-term care seats as well, or places as well. Yeah, I mean, I agree with with Daniel. You see, we, we don't have a coherent long-term care policy because uh, historically, long-term care, all this stuff, is social welfare. But um, the fact is, uh, if you go for subvented homes, which are cheaper, see, there, there's no shortage in private homes. It's the subvented people are queuing up for, hence the waiting list. Um, the... Um, you have to undergo assessment, and unless you, you're pretty physically or cognitively dependent on others, you do not qualify to enter into these homes, which means that the long-term residential care population is really very, very, require very intensive personal care as well as nursing care. Um, and, and this fact has not been factored in because how do you cope with that? The hospital authority sends out community outreach therapeutic teams to support them. The social welfare sends out a multidisciplinary team of allied health workers. The DH also has some team going out there. But you, you see, it, it's very siloed. And do they talk to each other? I, I'm not sure. Um, so, so I think we... we we need to focus on that. And, and of course, because they need so much care, the huge self-shortage, which uh, uh, the fifth wave put a very public spotlight on how terrible things really are. And the fact that COVID has gone away, I mean, we, we don't have this uh, dreadful mortality. It doesn't mean that the problem has gone away because because it still exists and you could question, did this um, huge fatality, did this mess contribute to the high death rate? 5,000 people in residential care died. Could that have been avoided, you see? Um, so so uh, long-term care 
something that we focus on. We don't just talk about where will we find 10,000 beds. Oh, we go to China. There's a physical environment issue. It's a bit like, oh, there's a lot of land in Greater Bay Area. We go there. But where is your personal care, your medical support? In China, the medical care is, is not free unless you've lived there and you contribute to it. You, you can make use of the health insurance system. The, the NGOs that run homes there, north of the border, every time they uh, somebody falls ill or they need outpatient thing. They, they come back to North District Hospital. They cross the border. And what happens if the border is closed? I don't know. I mean, there's a whole lot of issues relating to uh, to uh, what was proposed. I mean, successive governments always wave this around. But how does it work, uh, particularly with the increasingly uh, dependent profile that okay. we have for people who live in... Uh, residential care homes. Okay. Nobody lives yeah. there because they want to. Uh, Jean Wu, yeah, just hold that thought for a moment. Uh, we have to say thanks and uh, goodbye to Daniel Lai because uh, I know you have to uh, leave us uh, now. It's 10 to 9. Um, uh, Daniel Lai, member of the Elderly Commission and Dean of the Faculty of Social Sciences at Hong Kong Baptist University. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, uh, Jean Wu, just going back to what you were saying just a little earlier, um, so what happens to those uh, elderly people who are deemed uh, not uh, qualified for a place in a subsidised residential home? Um, so, uh, the, so these are people who originate from the hospital, right? They live mm -hmm. at home. They, for some reason, they entered hospital. And so then the hospital said, oh, you, you, you can be discharged. And, and um, so the options are that... Um, Okay, you, you try and employ, employ foreign domestic help or agency help. That takes a while to set up. So this is one option, continuing home care. The other option is that if they live with a family who needs to go to work, um, the um, increasing number of daycare centers is um, really a, a very good support and it's a, uh, re receives a government subvention in the form of daycare vouchers uh, so currently this scheme applies to people with dementia but it doesn't state the severity of dementia now a lot of these people have some degree of dementia so so then they can be assessed and they can apply and before the documents are ready they, they can pay right so if you uh, if you have no money the subvention is actually pretty good you can go there during the day uh, every day uh, the subvention goes up to about nine thousand dollars a month and there is a home uh, visit as well so while you're there you can you have meals you have uh, various exercises physiotherapy cognitive therapy uh, people can wash you except uh, you know social as well as physical activity, the physiotherapist and so on. Um, if, if you have some money, then you get less subvention and you pay, pay more. So uh, to, to my mind, this is a really very good initiative as a stopgap. Now the others, when, they, when that's not available, um, they go to private homes. Now the private homes, um, I, I would say that there are a lot of private homes. The number of private homes exceed, far exceed that of subvented. Uh, but the, um, if you go around looking at them, uh, the really good quality, you look for quality, we're talking about something like $70,000 a month. 
Now, this is, well, why is it like that? In, in England, it's about £2,000, £2,000 a week. Mm. So, uh, but then you do get good quality and there's government regulations and so on. So then in the private sector, the, the quality of care is huge. You can have the just affordable one so that you, you can be discharged from hospital. I mean, hospital doesn't keep you until you've found a solution. They can't. There's huge pressure. And, and so you, you just take the first option that comes along, um, the private homes, and um, there are a lot of problems with them. I mean, I think you saw some pictures of, you know, they're just one huge space. Um, the, the, there are things called government bought places. So the government kind of inspects some of them. I think that, oh, well, they seem okay. So they will give a subvention, bought place. Uh, but then the amount that is subvented is uh, really um, does not take into account inflation of salary. Let, let's say you, everybody's salary has gone up in the past 10, 20 years. And if you don't take that into account, if government subvention is stuck at a certain point, then, then that is an issue. And because the profile of people are so dependent, you really need nursing care. I mean, you can estimate. Well, if you talk to the, the nurses in HA hospitals, the profile these people, how many care workers they need, how many nurses they, they need, both, right, uh, for 24 hours or what they consider acceptable care in HA, uh, the number is far, far below what is estimated. And this is an exercise I did when I was uh, in charge of Shardian Hospital. That's something like 10, 20 years ago. I, I can imagine it can only get worse, and particularly with the demented people. I mean, 60% have dementia. And, well, how, I mean, it's really uh, uh, staff care. And, and of course, um, they rely a lot on relatives, caring relatives who, who visit every day or the uh, relatives who bring their domestic helpers along uh, to do the personal care. People rely on that for in HA hospitals too. And once you shut that down in pandemic policies, uh, you get all sorts of neglect and perhaps contributing to mortality. So the situation is really quite dire. And um, I think, well, I think uh, it's high time we, we need to focus on the whole issue of long-term care. That is, as you get older and older, uh, your function in every way kind of decline. And then you need various things at different life course stages. Um, um, yeah, pr Professor Wu, um, if we could just have more numbers. So, for example, the government estimates that um, at least uh, half a million more people will be over 65 in five years. Now, I assume that these are called the young O's. They should be fairly healthy if they have led, um, you know, a healthy lifestyle. They don't need the sort of long-term care yet, but they have to be more aware of their health conditions, and they really cannot abuse their bodies like they do when they were young. Yeah, yeah, right. um, so, uh, so that is really the majority. And when we look at, um, you know, the um, the number of elderly care homes and the queues and. Uh, and now, you know, um, 10,000 more beds. And that is really only a very small fraction of the elderly who could enter these uh, subsidized or subvented care homes. And, um, you know, it's such a small fraction of the 1.9 million who will be sort of over 65 in, in five years' time. It's, I mean, how big is that gap? Uh, 
And are any countries, cities in the world managing this sort of gap, or you know, do they just go along with ad hoc policies? What what could be the best way to to narrow that gap? Yeah, I, I think uh, as you say, the numbers keep increasing, and if you look at the numbers, what are you going to do? You, there's no hope of ever narrowing the gap because for some reason we're all living longer all over the world, right? So, so the absolute number is going to be huge. Um, so the the thing is not to look at the numbers, but to have some official statistics that says, well, out of this number, how many are uh, 70, 79, 80 to 89, 90 to uh, 99, and 100 plus. And then you look at each age group and look at what the prevalence of people who, are, who need care, the dependency level, both from the point of view of cognitive and physical function, self-care. Now, unless we have that statistics, you, you cannot formulate any policy. Now, I, I see in the papers that Hong Kong is the seventh uh, best place to, to, be, to have a chance of living to 100 and, and older. And um, I think uh, currently there are about 3,000 or something uh, people who are, uh, 3,500 people who are centenarians. So my, my interest is, well, out of that, how many are bedridden? How many are bedridden? How many are able to live at home, uh, uh, look after themselves, go out to play mahjong and eat, and so on? And unless we have that kind of statistics, you can't really. So, so policy mm. is just um, at, at the level that you mentioned numbers. Yeah, yeah. It's what sort of quality of life they have uh, as well, isn't yeah. it, apart from just uh, longevity. But uh, yeah. uh, please stay with us, uh, Jean. We've got to take a break for the news at 9 o'clock. We'll be back at three minutes past. A uh, quick look at the weather. It's going to be uh, fine, um, very hot with some haze in the daytime. Um, now, the outlook is for a very hot with haze tomorrow and winds will strengthen gradually um, overnight and progressively on Thursday with heavy showers and rough seas. It's currently 30 degrees. Humidity is at 82%. The very hot weather warning is in effect. Suspect was later arrested at Atlanta's International Airport. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to Back Chat with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And for the time being, uh, we're still talking about the welfare of the elderly as Hong Kong faces an ageing population. Um, already about one in five people are 65 and over and projections show that uh, there will be about another 450,000 um, by 2027. Um, we have uh, with us uh, Jean Wu, who's director of the CUHK Jockey Club Institute of Ageing and Emeritus Professor of Medicine at the Chinese University. And also joining us now is uh, Stephanie Law, who's an executive committee member of the Elderly Services Association. Um, just before we return to our guests, a couple of messages here from listeners. Um, James writes, um, elderly care is a challenge everywhere, whether care service at home or standards at care homes, which uh, certainly in Australia um, uh, blackmail you for a fortune and have your ageing parents live out their lives with dignity to have your parents at a care home. Um, how much do you love mother? The government needs to have strict standards on care homes or run them itself. Uh, why not encourage locals to work in the profession with training subsidies and promote a caring society? 
And Henry writes on our Facebook, uh, for elders or indeed anybody, people must do their best to exercise and have a balanced diet, uh, a Mediterranean diet or a DASH diet. I'm not quite sure what that is, Henry. D-A-S-H diet is uh, best. And to be frank, the typical food Hong Kong people have is uh, high in salt, fat and sugar. I heard a young doctor less than 30 years old uh, get a stroke, highlighting the importance of food and lifestyle. Only through good lifestyle through decades can one minimise chronic diseases when old and have a long and healthy lifespan and not uh, be bedridden or in wheelchairs for years in old age. Thank you for that, uh, Henry. If you want to get in touch, uh, any of our listeners, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, which is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 23388 OK, uh, uh, Stephanie Law, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Jim. How are you doing, Jim? Hello. So, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, you're an executive committee committee member of the Elderly Services Association. Um, you, you also work in the care home business. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience? Yes. Um, I myself am, am an operator of um, a private um, you know, uh, group in Hong Kong uh, serving you know, private uh, care homes, residents. And our association serves around uh, 400 plus uh, private residential care homes in Hong Kong out of uh, 750 care homes in Hong Kong. So, um, Stephanie, hello. Um, what um, uh, Jean Wu was talking uh, before our news break, that um, there are, in fact, a sufficient number of uh, privately run uh, elderly care homes in Hong Kong. It's just that um, things could be a bit expensive in these care homes, but uh, we still need um, more subvented bed spaces. Um, now, I mean, you you have two roles. You 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 operate, um, you know, private elderly care homes, and you also look at the uh, the whole um, situation. What 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 is uh, your take on this? I think um, currently, uh, private uh, operators um, in the care home industry really is a major uh, player in the industry. Uh, but uh, we are also. Uh, uh, half of our homes are also serving um, the uh, government uh, uh, enhanced bot play scheme, uh, which uh, Dr. Jim also mentioned. Um, so uh, most of the homes are not, uh, you know, uh, highly prized, um, but there are different uh, homes um, or uh, operation, you know, uh, services that are providing uh, to the uh, community. Um, what we see is that... Uh, Right now, we have a, a shortage of uh, places uh, due to, you know, the scarce of land and development uh, time of the homes uh, could take, uh, you know, three to five years or even 10 years uh, for uh, redevelopment of uh, care homes and newly uh, developed care homes. So this is uh, something uh, in mind. And also, um, uh, after the fifth wave, actually uh, after uh, 5,000 elders passed away from the care homes, right now the uh, industry is also facing a dire situation where um, the, the queues are shorter uh, and there is actually a shortage of, um, you know, residents in the care homes, within the care homes. Um, right now we see that the government is also trying very, um, you know, hard to uh, add a new places by um, opening up uh, homes uh, for bidding, such as contract homes, which will uh, be providing around um, 10,000 places uh, in the coming three years. Um, 
And also, there is a uh, um, abandonment of the uh, policy where a lot of the homes has to increase their space um, from uh, 6.5 meters square to uh, 9.5 meters square in just eight years. So a lot of homes are facing a situation of a possible, you know, uh, close down due to this um, uh, change. So uh, we we are also uh, looking for ways to help um, mm. these homes to survive. Right, and and do you see um, building more homes in the Greater Bay Area is um, one of the solutions? Um, we we see um, you know long term care or elderly care as a you know a, a bigger picture, an ecosystem, or even a trajectory. Um, just now, uh, I um, the speakers have also mentioned that. Uh, over eighty, uh, over ninety percent of Hong Kong elders actually reside at home. So, uh, only around five to seven percent of our elders reside uh, in residential care homes. And a lot of these elders are more um, frail, and they require a lot of uh, long-term care uh, support. Um, so. Um, not only um, adding, you know, uh, places to the homes, but we do think that uh, community care uh, support is very important. Um, and also, uh, Greater Bay Area actually um, also uh, poses a new opportunity for operators to look beyond Hong Kong, um, because uh, in the statistics, we see that in the GBA, um, around uh, 70 million population. But out of these uh, cities, a majority of the cities only have, uh, you know, most of them are only 5%, um, uh, I would say, uh, senior um, residents. Um, you know, comparing to Hong Kong, uh, we have around 20% of our residents which are seniors. It's already three times. So there is a, an opportunity um, in the coming years that uh, uh, the population will definitely be a um, big, uh, you know, uh, change in the GBA area. Um, Jean Wu, hi. Uh, are you still with us? Yes. Great. So, in terms of uh, uh, pros and cons, um, talking about uh, Hong Kong, obviously, uh, uh, are there any sort of special disadvantages or advantages? I mean, there are things like living space. Uh, in terms of home care, living space is always an issue. But then again, um, you can hire a, a domestic helper at a, a fairly uh, reasonable rate, um, much more so than you could uh, in other places, for instance. Yeah, um, so I think um, that's definitely an advantage to space, uh, um, which Hong Kong does, well, Hong Kong has space, but we're just crammed into the city, not mm. into the parks. We're not allowed to go into the parks. Uh, so that, that is definitely a good thing. Now, if you have uh, relatives in the Greater Bay Area, uh, um, which a lot of people have, um, it might be a good thing that they can be visited and so on. Um, I think the key point that stops people from doing that is is the, the need for um, um, medical care because it's expensive if you go to a hospital. It's like private. Um, so if you look at the, the home that's just north of the Fanling Golf Course, just across the board. They've been running it for a long time. And uh, I think uh, last time I heard the operator say that the, the only problem is that uh, they have to have transport. Um, you, you pay for transport to go across back to Hong Kong for outpatient, for emergencies and so on. Um, but if you have a system where, you, let's say you have insurance, and it's covered by 
uh, insurance scheme that when you go you can go to hospital might not be a bad, a bad thing. I think mm. once you get round that. Now I think it's really important to do a market survey of all the people who are on the waiting list or whatever who might be interested. How many would opt for? Uh, uh, moving to a home up there. Now, it, it could be quite positive because a lot of people have bought homes uh, in the Greater Bay Area. That, um, I, I think that if there's a, a way that you can deal with this um, medical support, you know, your medicines, uh, the, the issue of, you know, they don't trust medicines given in mainland China, all, all, all these things. Um, Maybe they can all go to the Hong Kong U Shenzhen Hospital. I don't know. Maybe there could be a special deal. <laughs> but but I think uh, for for that to develop further, uh, you need to think about these aspects too. And it, it is possible that personal care uh, would be easier to obtain there. Um, so yeah, pros and cons. But I think. It, what I think is a problem is that you say, the government says, oh, yeah, it's a good idea. Let the um, NGOs, let the private operators sort it out themselves. Um, that tends to happen. And, and so the, the members of the public are not aware of all, all the issues. Um, I mean, actually, there are quite a lot of uh, huge business running in, uh, in, in China where they provide all sorts of things for elderly as well as other you know, health health scheme, but it's private, you see. It's a whole issue of affordability. Mm. So affordability and health care. Um, if you can afford it, well, maybe you can just stay in uh, one of the better private home, um, privately run care homes in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, some are run quite well. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Jean Wu, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the programme uh, this morning. That was uh, Jean Wu, who's director of the CUHK Jockey Club Institute of Ageing and Emeritus Professor of Medicine at the Chinese University. Um, Stephanie Law, hi. Um, are you still with us? Yes. Stephanie Law, yeah. If you could just, uh, uh, just stay with us for a couple more minutes, because... Um, and I wanted to ask you about that as well, about the situation in Hong Kong. Um, crowded living spaces is, is one sort of a, a problem in terms of uh, care home, but also the availability of uh, domestic help is sort of quite an advantage, I would guess. Yes. Um, I would just like to add that, uh, add to Jean uh, that about, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the integration of uh, GBA and Hong Kong in terms of social welfare, uh, just to add to that, because it also brings us to, you know, look into the uh, um, help that we can get from, uh, you know, foreign helpers uh, from GBA, uh, because in the fifth wave, we also saw that uh, there was a uh, a moment of agility where uh, the government uh, was able to uh, import, you know, workers to help us uh, during the dire situation. Um, also, actually, in uh, 2014, um, the residential care service scheme in Guangdong has already, uh, you know, piloted and uh, were available for Hong Kong citizens to uh, reside in elderly homes in um, China, uh, you know, uh, by the support of Hong Kong government. Um, but there are only, only two non-governmental organizations who are operating uh, homes there. And I also uh, learned that, you know, recently um, the government also wanted uh, to promote or uh, uh, kindly, you know, ask for, you know, the support of Hong Kong uh, operators to uh, look into the um, Guangdong market, uh, especially in Nansha, 
because we also know that in Lansha, the uh, HKUSP is opening, and also there are a, an offices uh, setting up for different um, um, business uh, associations uh, to help to uh, uh, promote a greater scope of exchange between Guangdong and Hong Kong. So we think that uh, eventually um, there will be an integration of, um, you know, policies and also uh, Hong Kong, you know, operators can uh, set up, you know, either, uh, you know, uh, elderly homes or even uh, exchange with, you know, manpower or, uh, you know, training centers, uh, that kind of uh, uh cooperation and which uh, the industry is also very looking forward to. Right. Uh, Stephanie, quick question. Um, on yes. on this issue of, I mean, not the GBA, but in Hong Kong, it is n- not attractive for the young people to enter this profession, you know, the elderly care profession. Uh, many want to be doctors and nurses, uh, but um, not a professional care worker, uh, personal care worker. What, what's your suggestion on that? Um, we think that there are different um, ways to tackle this issue um, because Hong Kong is uh, really, uh, when we look into the education level, um, you know, in the past years, most of our uh, graduates are already, you know, from higher education or, uh, you know, associates. Uh, most of them uh, would, you know, uh, look into, you know, new, newer industries uh, instead of uh, healthcare or elder care. Um, when, um, you know, some of the... Um, programs, you know, they were designed for elder care. They also uh, try to, you know, offer a ladder for these uh, young youngsters, you know, to uh, start from a person care worker and then a health care worker. And eventually, you know, they can venture into, you know, the medical field. Um, but this is also something that we, we saw, you know, um, it's a short term help for the elder care, uh, you know, uh, residential homes. But uh, eventually, we still need to um, increase the uh, attractiveness of our industry and also uh, we do think that you know a professional um, letter uh, we, we said that you know elder care should be itself a, a, a different you know sector to consider as a professional because um, it's very um, obvious that uh, right now a lot of these long-term care um, workers uh, or, or people in the industry they are very uh, talented and they are very focused on taking care of the um, elderly. So this is actually the, um, the, the training is quite different from, you know, just the, the medical care. So what we think the industry is trying to um, see whether if there can be, you know, education or um, vocational schools that can uh, pertain to the need of long-term care. Sure. Okay, well, thank you very much for your contribution this morning. That was Stephanie Law, Executive Committee Member of the Elderly Services Association. And we're going to turn our attention for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme to developments uh, in Singapore, where the uh, government there has decided to uh, repeal a colonial-era law against uh, gay sex. And we also want to talk about what effect that that may have on regional competition to attract and retain talent. And we have with us now on the line Leo Yangfa, who's executive director of uh, Uga Chaga, which is a Singaporean uh, LGBTQ community organisation, and also Eugene Tan, a political analyst and law professor at Singapore Management University. Um, good morning to you both. Perhaps uh, Leo Yangfa first. Hello. 
Hi, good morning. Good, good morning Hello to you. Good morning to you. So let, just, just let me ask you first, uh, um, what has it been like uh, for members of your community um, living uh, with uh, this uh, old law in Singapore? Well, for the longest time, for more than 80 years, um, we've had we've been settled with this very painful and unfortunate colonial law that criminalizes consensual same-sex intimacy between adult men in private and in public. So, of course, in recent years, our Singapore government has uh, given repeated reassurances that it would not be enforced, and yet the reality is the cascading ripple effect of having that legislation it's just widespread, for example, and, and the restrictions on what we can or cannot teach in schools, restrictions on, um, on LGBTQ community organizations being unable or just having lots of difficulties being registered, um, access for healthcare and social services for LGBTQ plus persons, so on and so forth. So, of course, media censorship and, or, or the higher rating for a positive portrayal of LGBTQ plus persons and families in mainstream media. So again, all those cascading widespread effects in society, in day-to-day life, even though the actual legislation itself uh, was not often correctly enforced. Mm. So what do you think are the, uh, are the most important implications uh, after um, this law is repealed? As you said, you know, it's, um, it's the positive portrayal of the LGBTQ community that is also very important. How could that be done? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a social worker. I, I run a community organization. I work very much closely with the local community. I've got a small team of staff. I am trained as a counselor as well. And what I can tell you is that every day we have been seeing, and we will continue to see, members of the local LGBTQ community. And I think that's where we have the most impact. A very strong signal that our Singapore government has just sent um, on, on Sunday night that you know, it is no longer illegal. Yes, there will be discussions on public policies and, and all that. But those families, those dinner tables, and you know, over breakfast, over lunch, all those conversations, all those coming out stories, all those relationships, that's where it's all going to happen. And all that feeling that probably needs to happen as well, that's going to be so important, of course, in our counselling rooms as well. That's where the change will happen. Uh, Eugene Tan, good morning to you. Morning, Jim. Morning, Ida, and, and morning, Yamsa. And thanks very much for joining Hi. us. So, so the um, uh, the Prime Minister Lee Sing Lung said uh, he believes this change will be acceptable to most Singaporeans. So, I mean, has there been a change of uh, public attitude uh, in recent years? Um, I would say yes. You know, looking at um, you know my peers as well as uh, when I interact, uh, you know, with my students, I think there is now you know the view. A uh, fairly strong view, um, you know, that uh, Section 377A, you know, of the Penal Code, um, you know, should no longer uh, be uh, in our statute books. Um, and even, you know, the, the thinking is that even if we repeal 377A, uh, we should still be committed, uh, you know, to to the traditional uh, understanding and conception of the family. Um, yes. So I, I see... Mm. You know the announcement uh, last Sunday, you know, really as an attempt to forge, um, you know, a new consensus. Um, you know, and, and I very much appreciate appreciate the points that, that Yang Fa uh, has raised earlier. 
Yeah, um, of, of course, from our perspective uh, here in Hong Kong, there's obviously a, a lot of rivalry between uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, certainly in terms of uh, attracting, attracting talents. And, and uh, as, of course, you will be aware, uh, a lot of people have moved uh, from Hong Kong to Singapore in the past uh, couple of years. Um, w what difference do you think this is now going to make? Um, is, is it going to make uh, Singapore, uh, you know, um, you know, even more of a, an attractive place to, to move to, to, to set up shop, to, to go and work there, to start a business? I, I would say that, you know, it, it will make Singapore uh, perhaps better received, um, you know, by uh, same-sex couples, um, you know, but, but I don't think that uh, people are going to, to move, uh, you know, just on, on uh, for most people that is unlikely to just hitch on this one uh, particular consideration. Um, I think what it does really is, you know, is that Singapore um, is not going to um, let this law remain on the statute books, um, you know, and, and, and so I think what I think we should take away from uh, this proposed plan, you know, really would be, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, we can continue to uh, forge that the needs, you know, the, the importance of forging that new consensus, um, you know, and I think what is really important is that you know we must make the, the effort here in Singapore, you know, to demonstrate that we can we can live and thrive, you know, despite our deeply held differences. Mm. Right. Um, now, with this uh, imminent appeal of three seven seven A, you know, of the Penal Code, it, it certainly does not mean that. Um, Singapore is accepting uh, same-sex marriage, right? It's still very, very far away from doing that. Uh, Professor uh, Tan. Yes, I, I, I think, you know, the government was very clear, um, you know, that, that even as uh, plans are being made to repeal 377A, uh, you know, it doesn't change the status quo, um, you know, with regard to, to marriage, you know, which continues to... Uh, which continues and will remain, um, you know, uh, for the foreseeable future as one uh, uh, a voluntary monogamous union of a man um, and, and a woman. Um, but I think, you know, what Yang Fa raised earlier, I think, you know, with the repeal and, and with the, 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 the confidence, you know, that the traditional conception of marriage, you know, will be maintained, um, you know, is that both groups, I think, would feel, would be more confident. I, I hope, you know, that they'll be more confident in engaging um, each other, right, you know, to try to find common ground uh, and to see how, you know, um, both, both uh, the different segments, you know, could live, um, you know, and let live. Um, so I think that to me is the more uh, significant impact, you know, of, of the announcement. I mean, it's yet to be, to, to, to be, to be, yet to be seen whether that will materialize but I'm hopeful, you know, that, 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 that it would. Mm. Uh, uh, if, if I could make a yes, point... Yes, please, yeah. Yeah, young fellow, yeah, 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 please. Make a point about um, marriage or uh, equal mm. marriage, uh, to be specific, you know, from, from a community perspective um, here in, in Singapore, I think you have to remember that we're just starting the journey on decriminalisation. I think it's very important to know that the opposite of criminalisation is not marriage. The opposite of criminalisation is protection. So if anything, after we have decriminalised, after we have repealed, we should be looking at what else needs to be done to protect minority groups in Singapore, including LGBT persons. So it is a journey, whether you call it a legislative, political, social journey. It's not a switch going from decrim 
to marriage mm. in Singapore at least, I don't think that's the step we, 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 we are ready or want to take. But there's so many other issues we need to tackle in terms of inequality. Yes. Yes, uh, Yang Fa, I'm curious uh, about the perception of uh, the older generation of Singaporeans. Um, and are they, uh, are they, uh, do they understand uh, decriminalization or, you know, what are their views on, uh, on, on the LGBTQ community? Uh, because uh, the, the reason I ask that is that uh, if this is happening in Hong Kong, there'll be a lot of confusion about, um, you know, this issue and people will um, immediately think about uh, equalizing marriage, having same-sex marriage, and there'll be big pu public outcry in Hong Kong, I think. Yeah. But uh, is this happening in Singapore yet? Um, well, uh, maybe I can, I, I'll try to respond to that with two very kind of short anecdotes. Uh, one is, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a trained counselor. I remember several years ago, Camino um, H, uh, Mandy speaking, a mother came in, she had a grown-up son, um, who's in a relationship with another man. And she didn't come from a religious background. We sat in the counseling room. We talked about how she was struggling with accepting her, her son's homosexuality and uh, her relationship with another man. And she looked me in the eye and she said, Mandarin, you know, the government says it's illegal. How can I accept him? And as a counselor, how do you respond to that? So kind of those kind of um, conversations, hopefully, after Sunday, will continue. Um, so... And again, at the same time, the second thing I want to share is I, I was at, I, in the audience, in the live audience at the Prime Minister's National Day Rally on Sunday, and I was struck by the spontaneous applause that came from the audience when the Prime Minister announced that you know, this is for the good of Singapore. So I think that there is, just like in Hong Kong, Singapore, there's diversity of views and realities and experiences. I, I have faith, I trust that Singaporeans will get it, they will understand. It's one thing to hear about it. On TV and speech or reading the papers, there's nothing when you have relationships, real connections with real people that impact it. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you for joining us uh, on the program this morning uh, from Singapore. That was uh, Liu Yangfa, Executive Director of. Uh, Uga Chaga, which is a, an LGBTQ community organisation. And thanks very much also to Eugene Tan, who's a political analyst and law professor at Singapore Management University. Um, we've got to now... Uh, no, a couple of couple of more messages, but I have to save them till tomorrow because we're out of time. It's half past nine. Uh, thanks very much uh, to our listeners. Uh, thanks to you, Ada. Thank you, Jim. And a look at the weather before we go. It's going to be a, a bit rough uh, this week. Uh, uh, very hot with some haze during the day-to-day. -to -day. Top temperature around 34 degrees in the urban areas, higher in the new territories. Um, and the outlook 